0: How far away is the sun? Uh, 93 million miles. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And the diameter of the sun is 870,000 miles, which makes it 109 times wider than the Earth,
0: and 333,000 times heavier than the Earth. Shut up about the sun! Shut up about the sun!
2: In the middle of the day, Alex suddenly said, if I see another photo of the eclipse or someone wearing eclipse glasses, he was ready to throw a fit.
1: Loses, pardon my English, loses shit. Yeah. Well, and on top of that, as we watched everyone partake in the eclipse over in Asia, there was no way we'd ever get to see it.
2: Actually, I found out this is not true. Really? Yes. I fa- okay, so we don't get to see that eclipse, and North America is positioned to get better eclipses, but once in, I don't know, however long, we, it's possible. But the from, fact of the matter is point.
1: we had no opportunity to see this massively hyped up eclipse.
2: Yeah. All
1: right. All right. I'm, I'm cutting you off. No more eclipse talk. <laughs> yeah.
2: All right. Moving on.
1: How did you fare in yesterday's typhoon trees? For those unfamiliar, Hong Kong got hit with one of its worst typhoons, which is basically a hurricane, right? Yeah. One of its worst hurricane slash typhoons in five years.
2: Yeah, I was mostly fine. The interesting thing is that I got to feel my building sway for the first time. Um, I live pretty high up and we didn't have a lot of rainfall, but pretty high winds. So it was like being on a boat, slightly shifting.
1: There's a lot of these videos that are making its way across social media in this part of the world. Like, I don't don't know if anyone else would get a chance to see them, but it's kind of funny because some of them are just... In many ways, it's like fake news, right? There's like this yeah. one, there's this one video of a crane doing a 360 and it's clearly sped up.
2: Yeah. And there's apparently some clips that are not from yesterday's typhoon and also that are not happens. located in Hong Kong.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: But the one that is real, which I think is more funny than scary is the um, flooded garage where all the cars are just like submersed.
1: Yeah. That happens quite a bit, doesn't it? Should we get going? Yeah, let's get going. I have a pretty heavy topic to start the day off. I think it's heavy. I don't know if I, I, I kind of brought this up to you earlier and you dismissed it as me being overly liberal with my show notes. My subject is, what happens to creativity as we age? A new study in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences titled Changes in Cognitive Flexibility and Hypothesis Search Across Human Life History from Childhood to adolescence, to adulthood made its way into a New York Times op-ed by Allison Gopnik and Tom Griffins. Before we get started, I think I should probably preface what exactly that overly complex title means. Basically, it it, it looks into how creativity changes as we age and how different sort of age groups perceive, you know, creating conclusions. So in the study itself, They broke down several age groups, four to five-year-olds, six to 11-year-olds, 12 to 14-year-old teens, and adults. And this is paraphrased from the New York Times op-ed. Each group was presented with a scenario involving a physical machine that lit up when you put some combinations of blocks on it, but not others. Either of two hypotheses could explain how the machine worked. It could work in a usual and obvious way. Some individual blocks would make it light up, and the other blocks were irrelevant. Or it could work in a more unusual way it would take a combination of different blocks to make the sheen light up. On top of that, there was also a social component to the study where a story was told to each of the groups, essentially along the lines of Sally approached a skateboard and Josie avoided a scooter. And the groups were asked why this happened and why each person chose one over the other. If you look at the results, adults naturally explained the events by talking about a single block or about the personality traits of the girls. The obvious explanation, as the researchers would suggest, But later on through the study, new facts were introduced that made unusual conclusions more plausible, making the researchers wonder if adults would be able to choose more unlikely conclusions. Amongst all the solutions put forth for the block problem, the four- to five-year-olds were the ones who gave the most creative solutions, aka the most unusual solution, but for the social problems, it was the teenagers who gave the most unplausible answers. So the overall takeaway from the researchers were that there are two kinds of thinking, exploration and exploitation. For adults, new problems are solved with exploiting existing knowledge to base solutions on existing ones we possess. For adults, new problems are solved by exploiting existing knowledge to create solutions based on experience, while exploration is essentially trying something new and finding a less obvious solution. So the reason why I found this topic so interesting was that early on, right around when we started launching the beta phase of Macon, we did a story with a friend by the name of Andrew Chen who runs a fashion brand called 316, as well as a denim store called Self Edge. And I was always fascinated to see his interaction with his children and how he'd always talk about how interesting they were when it came to just everyday interactions and how they looked at the world.
2: Have you met his kids?
1: I have not, unfortunately. Oh. Yeah. Well, I kind of know them through social media, mm. but that doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't count. Okay. I'm not for a second going to say that counts. And as, as the study shows, it's such an interesting way to see how children view the world and how they solve for problems. But it also reinforced the idea of how and why humans think the way they do. And the exploitation approach to thinking answers in part a lot of that.
2: Okay, before we continue, I want to ask, have you hung out with children?
1: Yeah, I've hung out with children. I would say that in general, my my interactions with children, like friends, kids, and whatnot, are less problem-solving driven in a way. like I think that the, the extent of me seeing them create their own worlds is like, I think Lego is like the easiest example. Mm-hmm. It's like you're given a set to follow mm-hmm. and how often even myself as a kid, like you don't follow the rules. Yeah, You don't need to. And you can derive just as much value or fun out of creating your own world out of that.
2: I just wonder if you had like any personal experience or anecdotes that you feel backs up this idea. I, I accept the idea that children are more creative. I just was wondering if you had personal experience in that regard you
1: know what's interesting i think that the way i see the world as i mature as i get more experience it makes me think how i would have seen the world on the other spectrum without the experience if you know what i mean like it's almost like a process of elimination I, i deem it to be somewhat black and white so if you have one side covered then by virtue of having that one side covered it's like What is the other side? And that other side, I think, falls into the lap of how children and the youth make decisions.
2: So you're saying that as you grow older and you feel like you get more perspective on things, it also enables you to see the other opposite perspective from the one that you've gained? No,
1: I think it prevents me.
2: It prevents you?
1: Prevents me from seeing things differently. Okay. Because I have this validation so, I, uh, I'll, okay, I'll, I got it. I yeah, got it. I'll talk about it in, in more detail, but to, to kind of con- to continue on why I thought this was so interesting is yeah. that I follow a lot of people, people like Sam Harris, who's an American philosopher/slash neuroscientist and who runs this amazing podcast, talk about the usage of drugs in a safe environment. And he cited a 2011 article titled Drugs and the Meaning of Life. And he stated that.
0: Without them, I might never have discovered there was an inner landscape of mind worth exploring. And Sam goes on to reference Aldous Huxley, It is possible, however, if not actually plausible, to seize this evidence from the other end and argue, as Aldous Huxley did in his classic The Doors of Perception, that the primary function of the brain may be eliminative. Its purpose may be to prevent a transpersonal dimension of mind from flooding consciousness thereby allowing apes like ourselves to make their way in the world without being dazzled at every step by visionary phenomenon that are irrelevant to their physical survival. Huxley thought of the brain as a kind of reducing valve for mind at large. In fact, the idea that the brain is a filter rather than the origin of mind goes back at least as far as Henri Bergson and William James. In Huxley's view, this would explain the efficacy of psychedelics. They may simply be a material means of opening the tap.
1: There's a, there's a lot of mindfulness being practiced more and more these days, whether it's meditation apps and to a certain degree, stuff like psychedelics. What is so fascinating is because people are looking back on what they lack in their, I guess, relative older age as they become more experienced, as they have that sort of exploitative approach to thinking, right? And it's psychedelics that are sort of something that people are relying on or utilizing as a tool to kind of return back to that sort of youthful way of thinking. When you didn't have that to rely on.
2: Okay, so let me retrace.
1: I think stu- you have to retrace. It's it's somewhat complex. Like even myself reading, it, I I think I understand it better in my head relative to how I explained it and convey okay, the meaning. Okay, because
2: you kind of we went from you talking about this study that is not about psychedelics. To be clear, there are no psychedelics involved in the actual study in Correct. this article. Okay, the study is on um, figuring out whether children really are more creative. Yeah. And then the scientists posit as to why children and adolescents are creative for so long before reaching adulthood. Correct. And there's this whole component that you didn't actually even mention where the scientists, the researchers um, figure, they hypothesize that the reason why creativity in children and adolescence last so long is so that people can kind of work out all of their explorative energy before becoming jaded adults who always assume the same thing. In a way, yeah. You made the leap to psychedelics because there's, a, I think there's this critical point you didn't mention here, which is you desire to go back in some ways.
1: I think that people that are looking to think more profoundly are seeking that. So the reason why, like the actual takeaway from the study, the reason why I, I actually didn't, that much weight on it because that was sort of the op-ed side of it Mm. like it was less rooted in the actual science of it which Mm. you know to your point you're totally correct like that was sort of the conclusion to the op-ed is that they speculate the reason why we're sort of thinking along these lines is because let's let's figure out as youth that phase to kind of like usher us into adulthood
2: you've gone ahead to making the conclusion that it's better to be in some ways, childlike or adolescent-like. The, like when you went into talking about how psychedelics or drugs of any kind may facilitate innovative ways of thinking, it's because you already see value in that. Correct. Do you see what I'm saying?
1: I, I think there's a lot of things that I see value in. And, and you know what? I, I probably didn't set this argument up that well because mm-hmm. one of the things that, you know, when I referenced that Andrew Chen article, one of the things that, that was so fascinating about that story was there's so many... Societal pressures that children are devoid of mm-hmm. that are both societal as well as maybe cognitive that help them look at problem sets with basically a fresh set of eyes. And what that means is like from a, from a societal perspective, it's like, you know, one of the references that Andrew makes in his story is that there are certain things that I feel uncomfortable undertaking because I know that in this social media era, to not be good at something is is unfathomable right like if i if i might be really bad at the guitar right Mm -hmm. and i know that i'll never pick it up to a way that will be sufficient for me to share it right so that inherently prevents some people from picking up some things because they'll never be good at it yeah and that is sort of what i and it's good that you kind of called me out on that because i think it helps encapsulate the overarching narrative that exists here that i I basically missed out on Mm -hmm. right and i'm sort of like picking and pulling all these different things that are Basically, try to, they're trying to come to a point. Okay. And the point is, is like, as you become more experienced and a byproduct of that, if you become more successful, there are certain things that prevent you or limit you from seeing new solutions, better solutions, because you're so ingrained in what has traditionally worked. Yeah. So I think that's where I found interesting is like, children in, in and themselves have ability, have an ability to create a new set of solutions to problems that For adults, since, you know, they've only known it a certain way, they've fallen into this very, very linear path.
2: I have some thoughts. One of the first things that came to mind when you share this, we we shared this in the briefing and in preparation for the podcast was a study done in the 1950s by the Institute of Personality Assessment and Research at the University of California, Berkeley. And I found out about this study through 99PI, 99% Invisible. Um, this study invited all of these creative people to take tests. And it was like one of the first studies done on what makes up a creative personality. And the conclusion is really similar to this study done with children. The idea that creative people are non-conforming and independent, courageous, and self-centered. But this study was done with adults, right? So in a way, they this early study, like 60 years ago, was just determining that so-called creative adults are the ones that retain childlike qualities. Like that's one way you could frame it, right? Like adults who are uninhibited by other people's expectations, which children generally are. I think that it's possible in our current era because we are so aware of this, that creativity are these attributes that you could this is going to sound funny, but you could force yourself to break habits by adopting certain habits. Correct. Like you could say, yeah. there are some people who say it's like, you know, spend an hour every day doing something new or spend an hour every day, you know, honing a new skill. And, and obviously like one suggestion that you have already proposed is you can try psychedelics.
1: One of the reasons why psychedelics are so popular now is um, based on like the research for this for this week's podcast was it's the one- Thing that guarantees a result. So you can go and meditate, right? That doesn't necessarily guarantee a result, but by ingesting psychedelics, you can guarantee something will come of it. Whether it's good or bad, something will happen. Okay. I used to be so straight edge on the basis that like, hey, you know what? You should be very disciplined and whatnot. And it's kind of counterintuitive in a way to be overly disciplined prevents you from walking down different paths. Because you think that, hey, you know what? I mean, you could be. I mean, there's ways of breaking this down. You could be disciplined in trying new things, but I think overall, discipline inhibits you from from stepping outside,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know. And I think that's what's been really fascinating because, you know, you know Sam Harris is someone I, I I can't say I've been following for the last five years. You know, it's probably within the last 18 months that I started picking up and understanding, you know, how these extremely intelligent people approach. Responsible drug usage in this capacity. Um, and like, I've ne- I still have never done that stuff, but I think it's, I think that the, the, the notion behind it is interesting. And I also have a good friend who's sworn by it. He's like, you know, go into the, go into the forest, take some mushrooms and then see what happens. And you just come back changed. I mean, there's so many different things like, there's like LSD, mushrooms, ayahuasca that all fall into that certain thing where people are trying to unlock the current layers of cognitive ability that are being kind of kept in the you
2: know. No, I think I think I know you mean like there are there are parts of our minds that we can't access on a regular basis or would take a lot of effort. In fact, maybe it is inaccessible through just like effort. And that's what you're saying is that like by using drugs you could possibly reach parts of your brain that you didn't know existed or just are not, that you're not able to tap into regularly. Someone who I really respect and have read quite a bit of is Oliver Sacks, who is maybe, you know, a predecessor in a way of Sam Harris, because he's also a neurologist and an author. Uh, he passed away a couple of years ago. So he wrote this book called Hallucinations, which talks exactly about like the things that we're kind of talking about right now, um, about. um, His own experience with mind altering substances and then also his patient's experiences with that kind of thing. And that book was like, I also have not experimented with, you know, recreational drugs, but that book convinced me that if the opportunity presented itself, yeah, yeah. like it would be worth it.
1: I, I have to say like, as a word of warning, like I don't, I couldn't for a second recommend it because I don't even know how to approach it responsibly. Yeah, you know that's just a fair warning.
2: No, no, no yeah. I th- I think you do need to put that in. Yeah, I, I I would also say, even while I haven't had experience with this regard, I do wonder how your experience with psychedelics could be then applied to your work because, like, let's say you do experience something you hadn't experienced before, your mind was altered in some way. You would still have to try and apply that to the work that you do if you wanted to harness it.
1: Yeah. I well, d- I don't know what that looks like. Me, the reason why that I've I've taken so much time and just so much interest in this is that, and I I hate to just always reference back to Macon, but it's like doing what we're doing now. You know, it's not that Alex and I are inherently new to the world of you know media, but what I worry about is that am I taking experiences from the last ten years that are not applicable to the current landscape? Am I thinking in a very narrow-minded approach to solutions because I'm relying on previous experiences? And that to me is what is simultaneously frightening and worrying, which is why I keep thinking like, oh man, like I did this like this before and I think that it's the right way, but is it really the right way? And are there other solutions that I'm overlooking?
2: I mean, I think you can frame it that way where it's being narrow-minded, but- I do think that it's natural for adults to problem solve in unexpected in ways because it worked for us once. And in a way, it's like a protective mechanism. I was faced with this problem. And at that point, I had to come up with a new solution, you know, some point in time, and it worked out really well. So it's, it is natural that the next time you have a similar problem, you would try to approach it in the same way, even if it's not necessarily the best way. I do understand why we do that.
1: For for pragmatic reasons, for practicality, I think it works. For innovation reasons, I understand why people are are a little bit worried about just falling to the same path.
2: Something that's easier than getting access to psychedelics that you are a big fan of is having people around you who think differently and are willing to challenge you. So even if I'm set, if even if in a way I am set in my problem-solving methods and you are set And yours, at least ours are different. So then when Correct. we talk about it, I can hopefully ignite something new in the way you approach things yeah. and vice versa.
1: I, yeah, to that point, and it's very on a very similar sort of train of thought is just cross-industry collaboration, I find is very interesting because how people approach problem solving in different ways, I think it's like a low-level grade of just being open-minded.
2: I am interested in that cross-industry, especially when the industries are very different, because then you start to think about if a doctor solves a problem this way, could that be applied in some way to media or other examples?
1: Yeah, I just got a (laughs) nod from her, so we'll move on to the next one.
2: My topic for the week is an item of news that came up regarding the New York-based PR firm, Darris. They raise a ten million dollar fund to invest in future clients. So Darris's um, approach in the past as a PR agency is that they will take a small ownership stake in their clients in exchange for a discount on what they charge those clients. Um, but now Darris is going to invest money in yet to be launched startups as well as some of their existing clients. So Darris, while I wasn't familiar with this agency. Before reading this news item, I am very familiar with their clients, which include Warby Parker, Harry's, Reformation, and Everlane.
1: And for those unfamiliar, Warby Parker being probably the most popular one is eyewear. Harry's are razors. Reformation
2: and Everlane are both retail brands that are direct to consumer. Fashion brands. Yeah. Fashion brands, direct to consumer. I'm actually wearing an Everlane top in honor of this podcast. Um, And I'm a big fan. That's part of why I picked this topic because I am a fan of their brands even without knowing that Darius was the agency behind them. One thing about this news item that I wanted to ask you about is this transition from agency to investor. Because I feel like that relationship is different for clients. So not only are you providing them not only is the agency providing their clients with a service but they've invested you know financially in that client so i feel like this is a mixed bag of motives i'm not i'm not quite sure how to sort out how a client would feel about their agency also being their investor and then how you as an agency combination investor approach the best branding and marketing tactics
1: if i look at the the initial relationship that Darius was creating where they already own an equity stake, right? I think it's just putting more skin in the game. I actually don't think it changes that much because if I'm Darius and I'm doing the branding for a new startup and I possess a small equity stake, it's in my best interest to make sure this brand's successful. This brand success means I'm increasing my value, my stake in the company. So now it's what's going on is that like, they see brands that they view as having a lot of upside and they're just throwing more money into it. I think it's actually pretty clear cut.
2: Eugene, while I know that you wanna talk about the aesthetics of the brands Daris helps and how design is becoming homogenized, before we get there, while Daris did have Daris had a policy of, you know, having stake in these companies, I do think putting money into it makes that relationship a little bit more serious, like you said, which means that Darius is willing to really be on board with whatever the brand is about, which does sound like a good thing. Like sounds like you have someone who's got your back who really cares about what you do. But at the same time, if there was conflict, I think it makes it more tricky.
1: Because Can you use an example of a conflicting situation?
2: Yeah. So I imagine a conflicting situation being... Daris, as an agency suggesting a certain way of telling their story, like, let's say they say, "Let's do a campaign where every week on IG stories, you're going to talk about X,Y,Z, OK? And the brand says, "Actually, that's really not us. Like that's not what we're about. But Daris has stake and puts money into my brand, so does that make it much harder to say no about certain things? I know that I'm crafting a narrative. I just see this as being potentially problematic. I do have a question. I have a question for you that could make it easier for you to imagine this. It's if we hired a marketing agency that also invested in us and they asked us to market ourselves in a certain way and you disagreed, does knowing that they put money into us change your reaction?
1: I think you have to acknowledge it, but I don't, I mean, we might not get a second round. I mean, if you're, if you, can actually raise the second round, then probably there's opportunity there and this level of conflict that you're suggesting is gonna happen regardless. It's just how hard are each side's gonna fight for their cause or for their beliefs. On the Daris side of things, what makes it extremely impactful is that they have proven success. So let's say you're a startup, right? And you're getting into bed with Daris. Daris inherently has four really strong brands under the portfolio that suggest, hey, we've done this before, we have the experience, this is why it should be like this. So what, 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 what changes the dialogue here is that there's some sort of reasonable belief that what they're suggesting has validity. And in the grand scheme of things, if you are obviously seeking to raise money, the company is at a certain point in its time and it's, and it's, and in its trajectory to really want to scale, right? assuming well, I guess you don't really know what what stage of these companies are. you don't really know what stage these companies are at, but I think in the grand scheme of things it's you have not only a great partner but one that's even more heavily invested. I see it as being a win
2: I can't argue it your way where because Darris has. So much money and in stake invested. Cloud, yeah, they they're not going to sabotage the brand. They're in this. Like, they exactly, can yeah. only benefit themselves. So I can't see it that way. I just think that the more money that's involved, that relationship becomes has more factors.
1: Yeah, from a, from a business side, I think it makes great sense because all of a sudden, as you know, as in the agency model, you're you're basically monetizing human capital, mm-hmm. and there's a limit to that. And by virtue of using expertise, using um, intangible things like management, experience, contacts, connections, let's, say, let's just say hypothetically you're charging you know $500 an hour, right? There's an opportunity to make significantly more money through just helping a company scale than it is just to, hey, I'm going to charge you for this human capital. And make my markup on that.
2: Okay. We can go back to the concern you raised about, or the intrigue you have. Yeah, I think
1: it's intrigue. The
2: intrigue you have about whether the design of consumer products will become increasingly generic. Is that the right word? I
1: think it's already generic in a way, but.
2: So my response to this is that with those four brands, what, I think of like what sticks out to me because of my familiarity is their story behind the brand. Like what they would say, who they are, like regardless of whether I believe it or not. I do think that I know their lines about who the company is better than I would even say what their aesthetic is. And I think that's more important.
1: I don't, I actually don't know entirely like reformation. I don't really know. I kind of know. Actually, I would say that I'm, if I was tasked with a quiz, I wouldn't be able to, with great certainty, get okay. 100% on it. But I guess you're right. Like There is the sort of narrative that they've put out there that is quite concise, quite consistent. So it's well-branded in that capacity.
2: Yes. It's well-branded in that capacity in terms of who they are. And I do admit, if you look at their logos and their websites and their social media, there's a lot of similarity.
1: Almost to the point, would you almost argue that if you took, you know, Warby Parker, removed the eyewear side of things and just used their art direction and applied it to another brand in the Darius portfolio, that it would still work?
2: I think it would work, but I don't. I think it would work. I see what you are saying. I don't see it as being problematic if the products are good. If the quality of, because these are products, Brands Like these are companies that sell you a thing. If the thing itself is of high quality and their story is genuine, then if the logo and branding and marketing is the same and is applicable to other companies, I don't, it doesn't bother me.
1: Fair. I mean, I I, I would, of those four brands there, I would buy none of it, <laughs> but that's just me. Like i that, that's my perspective on it. I just think that that level of just cookie cutterness to it is just unappealing.
2: But you're talking about cookie cutterness in terms of the look, not even the thing itself.
1: I would say they all have a very similar approach. Like, I think, no, but all-
2: like, my thing is that if the razor is good, does it matter that their approach isn't? Like, if that the approach isn't unique?
1: Yes. The razor is good. Part of, it's part of the whole brand, but I, I would argue too that it's not like there's only one good razor brand out there. That's the thing. Is like, if I had, and like, what, this is This is my own personal belief on, okay. on consumer habits, right? Like, it's, I'm not going to It's gonna hard go, because
2: now that we're in the same room, you can like see me roll my eyes at you.
1: Yeah. All
2: okay, right, continue. Your personal belief, your personal belief if that you, could, uh, you don't like the approach so much that even if this was the best razor, you would still not buy it.
1: I just think it's so, I mean, it's so simplistic. It's just like, it's just basically- Rinse and repeat. That's why for me, it's like it doesn't really convey all that much. It's just like, do you know what I mean? Like, it's I, just I like, do
2: know what you mean. I just can't believe that you are. I can't believe that this is the stance you're taking because of yeah. who you are. I find it slightly funny that you're hung up on their mark, their cookie cutter marketing that you wouldn't use a good product
1: because the marketing inherently. Because this is my whole belief on brands. Okay, brands in general are defined not necessarily by the product as much as who buys into it. This is, and the thing is like, if you find this stuff compelling, I'm like, man, I don't think I want to be grouped into this same sort of demographic.
2: Okay. This, I, I this, don't know, I've okay. already asked you this like three different times, but let's say it, I gave you an item that you weren't even aware of the brand in the marketing. And it turns out to be your favorite, I don't know, shirt or... Like it's functional, like it serves your needs. And then you find out that their marketing is cookie cutter. Does that suddenly disenchant you from using that item? 100%.
1: Goodness. 100%. And the reason why is that like, especially in fashion, which is somewhat of a commodity, you know what I mean? Like there's always another option out there, right? And I would much prefer to align myself with, knowing there's so many options out there, I align myself with a brand that actually makes sense front to back. Product's good. Marketing's good. Branding's good.
2: You're just so... You need to do a whole background check on every brand you use. What glasses are you wearing? Where did you buy your glasses? Dita. Dita?
1: Dita. It's like a um, Japanese brand.
2: Okay. And are you aware of their branding? Yes. And you find it unique enough they use they use these were... special
1: hex screws that are not on any other. Eyewear. Okay, but
2: that was a, that's a product description that you've just described. Okay, not like a marketing branding. Like let's say Darius signed Dita and applied the Warby Parker look to Dita. Do you suddenly feel differently about your glasses? Yes. My gosh. Okay. One hundred
1: percent. One hundred percent. But that's the thing is that like, I would argue that the the I mean I I I, I just highlighted a particular part of the functionality in a way. But I think that's also representative of the whole brand. It's like, when I look at strong, impactful brands, I look at the whole thing. If I'm going to spend my hard earned money on something, I want like the full package. I want something that can stand up in all capacities. Does that make sense?
2: No, it makes sense. It makes sense. I think you and and I are just really different people because I buy an article of clothing because I look good in it and the material is soft. (laughs) And it's a color I want and it's affordable and not because their logo and their website and their marketing approach is stunning.
1: Yeah. But that's the thing. Like I, that's why I hold myself and I hold brands to such a high standard. You know what I mean? I mean, this is funny because as an aside, like before we started this conversation, uh, one of Sharice's friends said I expected too much out of Nike from the ASAP Bari episode. Yeah. Which was what, eight?
2: I think,
1: um, or six. I need to. Second. I need to check back. But
2: it was seven. Yeah, it was episode seven, and my friend said that while she could understand Eugene's approach towards the Nike Asabari relationship, she felt he was so idealistic, so optimistic about brands that she just found it like I completely disagree with you and your approach. Yeah. Told which you is fine. That.
1: Like I, I definitely, if someone's listening to this, they're probably like, man, Eugene's an asshole and he's <laughs> an elitist, which I, 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 need, I mean, I'll, I'll take that any day of the week, but that's the thing is like, I, I'm more fascinated in people that are innovating and, and pushing the envelope and carving out their own lane. Not someone that just like, Hey, you know what? This worked for an eyewear company. Now let's apply it to razors and let's apply it to luggage and let's apply it to clothes.
2: I think that Darius still does a good job of telling a story yeah. and they do have a different story for each brand. They're not trying to apply the same story. Well, yeah, to naturally each product. the founder, the
1: founder's stories will differ.
2: Yeah. And the values of the company yeah. differ, like their mission in that product. And that is important to me. Like that story is important to me more than the other aspects that you are describing that are more cookie cutter-like?
1: By no means am I disrespecting Darius. I think they're making a, a really, really great play. But the brands, honestly, they aren't for me. And I can only see things continuing along this sort of Darris branding path, which doesn't mean they're not going to make probably a ton of money, right? But I just, I don't really see it innovating in the space.
2: I can... I can also argue this your way. I can see it. And what I see the future of consumers retail looking like, like that space is brands and products that do not have as strong of values and vision adopting this look and consumers because they've started to equate this Darius aesthetic with a certain strong story and vision Applying their same loyalty to these new brands. So I do think there is that danger. I can see how in the future, maybe there's a startup which really doesn't have anything special going for it, like product-wise or story-wise, but because of their social media and aesthetics, people are still willing to buy into it.
1: I'm trying to see if there's anything else I want to add. Good banter today though.
2: I think I got, I haven't gotten this upset for a couple of episodes now.
1: Well, it's good. I think you should be emotional about this. But I honestly, this is the biggest difference, like fundamental difference on how we view product. And I I think that brands aren't necessarily ruined by bad product choices. It's, It's who the association is. The way I've viewed product is obviously ingrained in a certain way. You know what I mean? I don't think... I don't even think an LSD trip will change how I look at product. We should try. Well, I've uh, sufficiently pissed off Sharice for the day. That's a good good place to cap things off. If you're interested in hearing more about Macon and its membership opportunities, head over to macon.com. There you'll experience some of our stories, focus on the sights and sounds of creative culture. You can
2: subscribe to us through your favorite podcast apps and platforms. We'd also like to make a request that if you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this episode with a friend.
1: I can just picture the first review. Sharice is awesome. Eugene, not so much. He's an elitist asshole.
2: <laughs> All right. You you are free to leave that review, listeners. As, well, I guess you could leave Eugene it with five
1: stars. that it? Yes, please. Yeah. I'm Eugene. I'm Charisse. And this is Making It Up. I'm just going to do some claps, clap one, clap two, clap three. There's absolutely nothing because they're both synced on the same track, but it's uh, a tradition now.
2: (laughs) Not that the claps ever make it into the recording. No, maybe this one will. Okay. Okay.